Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is John Feldhaus, here with Verity Talk. You're listening to Epic Gnosis. Thanks for tuning in, whether you're tuning in from uh, the States here. I, I saw we've got people tuning in from uh, different countries. We saw Germany and I think Ireland. That's so cool. Thanks for tuning in from uh, all over the world. This is awesome. Um, we just, I want to get right to business today. We are going to talk about the printing press and Johannes Gutenberg and what made this such an epic thing, an epic event and invention in history. Some of you already know what the printing press did for um, for education and for spreading knowledge and so forth, but some may not be familiar and others may not be familiar with um, what this had to do with the Bible. So stay tuned. I'm going to get right into it. All right. So the printing press, we're going to talk today about uh, when that happened. We're going to talk about when it was invented, who invented it, and uh, why it was so important, and the major application for the printing press, and maybe some uh, previous uh, predecessors to the printing press that Gutenberg had created and invented, and why it's just really, I believe, divine providence that got the Gutenberg uh, printing press to get as popular as it did in the time that it did, and uh, we'll, we'll just jump right into it here. So, the printing press. Let's see. So, let's, let's dive into some of my notes here. Gutenberg, <clears throat> he invented the printing press in 1440. So, if you know your history, 1440 is uh, towards the beginning slash middle of the Renaissance era. So, the Renaissance era, you'd think of people like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Galileo, some of these different scientists and artists. <clears throat> you'd think of people like Rembrandt. Um, who else? There's a lot of other people from the Renaissance, but those are those are some of the major names that come that come to my mind, and you will find their names when you look up Renaissance. A very big time in history where art became a lot more realistic. Um, some would argue and say it was more humanistic, so there was more of a draw to like Greek and Roman culture. So you'll see a lot of depictions of uh, Roman and Greek, you know, mythology and uh, things that happened in that time period. But you'll also see a lot of biblical depictions of Jesus. You'll see depictions of well, of course, Leonardo da Vinci had the uh, the Last Supper. That he painted, I believe that was Da Vinci. Um, I could be wrong. I didn't study this topic. I, I'm just giving some uh, background knowledge for what I actually studied. So um, you can correct me if I'm wrong in uh, the comments of Facebook, um, or can you comment on podcasts? I don't think you can. But anyway, um, yeah, no, yeah. The Last Supper, I almost called it the Last Dinner, the Last Dinner, <laughs> that's what it would have been called if it were painted in America. Anyway, no, um, so yeah, Renaissance, big deal, and the printing press had a lot to do with how, um, how big the Renaissance became, 
and how quickly the Renaissance ran its course because then it was like the Renaissance happened and all the ideas that were coming out of people who were studying and making discoveries and uh, uh, purporting ideas um, and inventions, they were able to publish their papers and books and things and able to get them widely um, distributed across all of Europe and beyond through the printing press, thanks to Gutenberg. Now, some people um, argue that there were other printer printing presses uh, of sorts before Gutenberg invented his own in Europe at this time. And they would be right, but there are some different um, factors that played into Gutenberg's being the best. And here's, I'll go over a few of the things that are in history right now. So, of course, a lot of things that, you know, people are like, well, they, you know, Europe wasn't the first one to come up with it. Usually it's the Chinese that are the ones that come up with it first. Chinese, Japanese, somebody who's Asian because they, you know, let's face it, the Chinese are pretty smart people uh, and the Japanese are very smart people. They, um, and, and uh, I was looking into the kind of press, you know, kind of printing, woodblock printing and stuff that they had going on in their time. Um, and I could see why. I'm like, oh my gosh, they were they were doing a lot of learning, and uh, they were able to get knowledge widespread um, just as much as we were. But um, let me look up my info here that I have. Um, sorry, I I lost my Wikipedia page. <laughs> I better bring that back up here. Wikipedia again, it's not bad. It gives you some very good but basic information that's helpful. Okay, so the history of printing. So the first instance, instances, of course, there was ancient printing. <clears throat> it wasn't mass printing. They, let's see, they talk about how people printed their hands onto walls in Neanderthal times, apparently. Um, of course, they put their seals and they put uh, engravings and markings into things like bronze and clay and stone and gold even into wood they had so the one that was more sophisticated that did a little bit more of a mass production would be wood block printing um and of course mostly in um eastern asian countries like china japan korea um they were spurned on they you know of course most of theirs was spurned on by a religious uh, pursuit to put religious texts out um into circulation but Actually, they weren't putting things into circulation. I found this an odd fact, and I think it's going to uh, add to the point that I'm going to be making here. I'm going to quote from, uh, from Wikipedia here. The rise of printing was greatly influenced by Mahayana Buddhism. So that's a, a very prevalent form of Buddhism in the day. According to their beliefs, religious texts hold intrinsic value from carrying the Buddha's word and act as uh, talismic, talismanic objects containing sacred power capable of warding off spirits. So the texts themselves weren't um, meant to be read. They were meant to just have. They were like, you know, having a book as a lucky charm or having a scroll as a lucky charm. And by copying and preserving these texts, the Buddhists could accrue personal merit. So... Uh, um, Again, it wasn't about what you actually read in it. It was about just having it. And it was like, okay. Um, as a consequence, the idea of printing and its advantages in replicating texts quickly, quickly became apparent to Buddhists 
who by the 7th century were using woodblocks to create uh, apotrop apotropaic, that's what happens when you read a word for the first time, uh, documents. And um, apparently, obviously, I do not know what that means because I just pronounced that word for the first time. Um, basically, the point is... Um, oh, oh, it says it a little further. Okay, these... These Buddhist texts were printed specifically as ritual items and were not widely circulated or meant for public consumption. Instead, they were buried in consecrated ground. The earliest example, extent, uh, extant example of this type of printed material is a fragment of something, of course, something Buddhist in Sanskrit unearthed in the tomb of a guy, Zeon. Okay, so again, and it was called the Great Spell of Unsullied Pure Light. Wow, okay. So, it was during this ancient time that they, so they, they had ancient printing techniques. So, and anything that was mass-produced was usually a picture that they sent out to the rest of the world. So, you know, it, it it's, um, a thought just occurred to me, so, um, this is a little half-baked, but forgive me if it's not exactly articulate in the way that I want it to be. But it does seem like there's a pattern with this area of the world. Um, it's a human problem, but it does seem like when there is a way to make massive amounts of information accessible to a lot of people, there's always somebody who wants to curb said production of it by making the by twisting the purpose of it. For something else. <laughs> so here, here's something kind of dumb. This is dumb. I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. I, I'm. I don't care who you are. But uh, mass pr mass printing text as a lucky charm, so that they can be buried underground as part of you know making the the ground fertile with this spiritual you know. Um, they're accruing. What did they say? Uh. They were able to accrue personal merit. What? You accrue the personal merit by just having it. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm going to bring this around to something that uh, Christianity addresses a lot. And it's, well, for one, it's not the text itself. The Bible, man, the Bible is holy and precious. Um, I know people... Um, who don't even put their Bible on the ground out of reverence for the word. It's, you know, that's a good thing to do. But it's not the printed pages it's pages itself that hold the value. It's the words themselves. If the words are not read and understood, and if the word that is contained in the text is not revealed to your heart and spirit, they don't do you any good. There's atheists who read through the Bible many times, but for the purpose of disproving it and see saying see there is no god see there is no god and it's like sometimes people just read something and they don't really get anything from it and some people just have it printed in their house like um i, I read a statistic the other day and it said that the bible um let's see i, I believe that there's only four there's three or four billion bibles that have been put out in print. They are there are four billion Bibles that have been printed out into the world. 
four billion. Now, uh, I read that and I was like, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has a Bible, because so, first of all, that means half if everybody had just one Bible, then only half the people in the world would have a Bible, right? Because at this point, we're a little over eight billion, right? Um, someone can correct me on that if I'm wrong, about eight, probably, I think, 8.2 billion, I'd say. We'll round up there. 8.2 billion people in the world today. Four billion people have access to a Bible. And I read, um, I was watching David Barton. Um, he's a, um, he's an American, uh, uh, what you, uh, I guess a historian. He's collected, uh, lots of ancient documents. His um, his um, organization is called Wall Builders. You can go to wallbuilders.com and they have, uh, he says they have, um, uh, I think he said like thousands of documents that are predating 1812. So a lot, and they're from American history. So tons of letters, tons of um, federal documents and <clears throat> original um, original documents from things like, you know, the Declaration of Independence, different letters and stuff. So anyway, um, I don't think it's the deck. I think there's only one Declaration of Independence that I could be wrong on that too. But anyway, um, the point is he was saying that in the world today or in, in America today, well, you know, we're a Christian nation, right? I don't care what anybody else says. America is a Christian nation. We are founded on godly principles. And uh, if you go and you study things like David Barton has done, um, we're not, we were not, uh, Benjamin Franklin was probably the least religious of them all, but even he had a pretty deep-seated faith in God. And he was actually the one who would, uh, when they were making the Constitution and everything wasn't going well in the the meetings, he's the one that said, hey, we need to pray, basically, in so many words. He was like, and he quoted all the scripture, scriptures that today we would be like, what the heck are those? Um, we don't even know the references anymore. And um, But he, being the least religious of all of the founding fathers, was like quoting all this like kind of obscure scripture saying, hey, we need to pray. This is important. We don't want to mess up our constitution. We have a, a posterity that is depending on us getting this right. So, um, all of that to say, in America today, um, the statistic is, the uh, in the average home, there are about 4.4 Bibles in each home. So obviously that's an average because nobody has just a fourth or a four-tenths of a Bible in their house. But the uh, point of that is, we have all these Bibles, and yet, really, we are some of the most illiterate people on the Bible uh, as far as history is concerned, we, we know the least amount of our Bible today. And um, it, it's, it's proven in the fact that, one, that also there's another statistic that says um, of all Americans that say they read their Bible only about, I could be getting this mixed up too, but it's 9% of people have read the Bible through all the way through. Um, only I think, and there's only a certain number of people who read their Bible every day. Uh, want to say, want to say about half, want to say about half people who claim to be Christian, to 
read the Bible. They don't read it every day. So, and this is in stark contrast with some of the founding fathers, and I would argue even the people who are here in the Renaissance, and uh, we're about to go over the Great Ref- the, the Reformation. Uh, I talked about Isaac Newton, who was <clears throat> the one who was part of the Enlightenment period of time that was kind of spawned on after the Reformation period uh, of history in, in Europe. And um, they knew their Bible really well. Isaac Newton knew his Bible so well, he was writing on Bible prophecy and um, the dim- dimensions of the Solomon's temple. So that's how big of a deal the Bible was to people in the past. And it shows because they made some great uh, strides in history. They made great strides in scientific studies and math in uh, all these academic studies and all these artistic ventures. Uh, guess what? Michelangelo, uh, people want to claim you know, things about him that he was super humanistic, and maybe he was, but he still had a very deeply seated religious uh, mindset, and he had a, a heart to honor God, and you see it in his painting of the Sistine Chapel. I mean, that that work is beautiful. I don't care who you are. That is beautiful to see that. I would love to go see that someday. Um, but there there was more of an awareness of God's presence, power, his divinity, more of a reverence for him than we give them credit for, is what I'm saying. And uh, I wanted to point that out today in the printing press because, um, what? Uh, let me ask you a question. What do you think the the first the first, not even the most printed, the first book printed on the printing press was? You guessed correctly. It's the Bible. The Bible was the first thing printed. Um, the Bible was printed. Jo- Johannes Gutenberg, he printed the first the first thing he printed. I mean, he was trying he was trying the printing press on different things, but the first thing he officially got out there in mass circulation was the Latin Vulgate Bible. Pope Pius IX came up and he attested to it that, yeah, this, this thing is looking good. He was coming and checking out the work that he was doing, and he was like, all right, I can't wait for this thing to get printed out. And um, I thought that was interesting. It was the Latin Vulgate Bible. I want to go over a little bit of the history of the Latin Vulgate, too, because I, I went in. I went into study about this. The Latin Vulgate was uh, translated and copied by St. Jerome, and he, he's an ancient uh, founding church father. He, uh, he was a hermit. He was somebody who was, uh, he was known for this version of the Bible that he printed. He was known for having done it, uh, of course, in Latin, but um, previous manuscripts of the Bible were copied from what's called the Septuagint. Bible. It's and the Septuagint is a version of the Bible that um, was the whole Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament was originally in Hebrew, of course, but then later on, the uh, the uh, the surviving copies or the most prevalent copies of the Bible were printed in Greek in the time period a little bit uh, before the Roman Empire took power. Uh, Greek, of course, we had Alexander the Great conquering a bunch of land, and he's the one that propagated the, the Greek language. Greek was all over the world. That was like the common tongue of the day. 
And so they had the Jewish Bible, among all these other uh, documents copied in the Greek, so that it could be uh, understood by more people and um, produced in that way. They didn't have the printing press to be able to do that in a short period of time in on as much mass production, but still it, that's, um, that's how it was done so that it could be understood by the people of the day. Um, and, but then that was the one that they ended up, um, reading and getting, you know, and, and each language has different characteristics to it and they bring out different, um, parts of speech and different understandings of what someone is saying. Um, and so in the scripture, you'll read something and someone will say, well, what is that in the Greek? And they'll say something like, oh, that's agape or that, or that's koinonia, or they'll bring out some word and it has, you know, a deeper meaning than just the surface level meaning that an English word might have of just love or, um, or fellowship or something like that. That's what those two words mean respectively. And, um, but and the Greek is great, um, especially if you're reading something from the New Testament because that's what the New Testament was written in. That was the language of the day. That's what people wrote in to communicate with people. But the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And when something's originally written in a certain language, the most meaning can be found in that original language. So bringing it back to Jerome, Jerome went to uh, Bethlehem to a monastery there, and uh, the whole purpose was to get fluent in Hebrew so that he could copy the Latin Bible uh, straight from the Hebrew. He could copy it from the Hebrew into the Latin to preserve as much of the meaning as could be ascertained. And this wasn't really a thing that was done back then. This wasn't something that was like, yay, oh, that's a great idea. In fact, there were founding fathers, uh, excuse me, there were church uh, church leaders in the day well, namely one of them was Augustine and we have like our um, the Apostles Creed from St. Augustine I believe um, he was a major church father major in the faith um, we have a lot of understanding of the gospel through him but um, but he was he was not really for this what Jerome was doing but I I commend Jerome uh, St. Jerome for doing that because I'm like you know I always want to ascertain the most meaning out of what someone is saying. And so in order to do that, you you got to know the intent of what someone is saying. You got to know some of the idioms. That's, you know, different phrases that people use in that language to be able to determine, well, what do you mean? What are you saying? Um, you got to know context of the culture of, you know, where somebody comes from, where they're going. Uh, you got to know their history in order to kind of know why their language is the way it is. So that's what uh, that's what Jerome was doing. And so um, that Gutenberg was doing this, I believe, wasn't an accident either, the Latin Vulgate. And of course, the Latin Vulgate was pretty popular back then, so that was something that the Catholic Church made more standard, of course. But then um, the intent of Jerome's um, copy of the Vulgate... Latin, I believe his intent and uh, the motivation behind him doing that, I believe, would get transferred to another church leader that we're very familiar with. And I'll try to make it brief with him, but uh, you could study so much on this man. Martin Luther. I love the story of Martin Luther. And here's, uh, here's just, you know, the brief 
rundown of who Martin Luther was if you're not familiar with him. Martin Luther was a German. Johannes Gutenberg was also a German, but um, we had Martin Luther was a German, um, German monk, gave his life to the Lord in, in service to him. Um, I don't know if you would say he was born again yet because um, maybe he was. There, there are some things that were ambiguous about when people came into the church. I'll say this for those of you who um, are listening and are not Christian, you're not born again, or you go to church and you're not aware of this fact. Um, you can go to church your whole life and not be a Christian. Just And, you know, people use this analogy too. Just because you go to your garage a lot does not make you a car. <laughs> Just because you sit in there all day... Um, you can get in your car, you can drive your car, you can be around your car, you can be around your garage all the time and love the garage. I love being in the garage. Uh, actually, I don't love being in my garage because it gets hot. Um, but I do, you know, I, I'm just saying that as the analogy says, you can be in church all the time and not be a Christian and not be born again. A true Christian is someone who has had their life transformed by the power of God and they are born again, as Jesus said in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 3, uh, somebody came to him in the night and was like, Teacher, we know you're from God because, you know, nobody who isn't from God would be able to do the signs that you do. And Jesus is like, well, you haven't even seen the beginning of the kingdom of God. In order to be able to do that, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is tripping out over that. What? And Jesus has to explain that whole process to him. That's why. Oh, and then we have the famous John three sixteen that comes from that. Um, but anyway, getting back to Martin Luther, he was a monk who was studying. Of course, um, I don't I don't have the full history on Martin Luther right now. Also, but I because I wanted to go over the printing press. The printing press made a lot of what Luther did possible. Um, made his writings. It made his teachings. It made what he discovered here uh, possible for us to learn. Um, and I, I, I mostly remember my history from the, <laughs> the movie. I like movies. I think my next uh, podcast, I'm going to be going over uh, one of my favorite movie series and um, recent, uh, uh, a recent, what do you call it? Okay, so I, I want to talk about Lord of the Rings next week. <laughs> so just so you're aware. And uh, there's a new series, The Rings of Power, that's based on the works of Tolkien. I think I'm going to be going over that next week because there's a lot of good golden nuggets to be dug out of that. Uh, and you'll also get my opinion and review on the the Rings of Power series as of late. Um, and I think by then there will be a fourth episode. I've seen the last two and the third one just came out today. Um, as per you guys watching this right now, watching, I mean listening, um, Sometime soon, we'll get to we'll get to filming here. But uh, for now, um, we got we got you guys in our core group that are just listening, and so you guys, you guys are the core. We we love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, anyway, so Martin Luther, he um, the discovery he made in his study was that he was studying in well, really, what led to him studying about the grace of God was he took a trip to Rome. And, right, Rome is basically the 
the Christian capital of the world. The Pope lives there. It's the Christian political capital of the world that's um, got all, you know, everybody's visiting there. You know, all roads lead to Rome, right? That's the old adage. Um, and it was still true, but it was because of the church. Well, uh, Martin Luther's seeing, you know, Rome wasn't particularly special in his eyes. In fact, he was seeing a lot of things. He was seeing debauchery. He was seeing cheating, stealing. He was seeing, you know, priests doing unspeakable things. And he's like, this is not the church I know. And um, and then he goes to the Vatican. Um, he goes where, uh, where, you know, indulgences were a big thing back then. Indulgences were what... Um, Oh, the, the church preached was something that you paid, and they also believed in the concept of purgatory. Purgatory was basically like the limbo space between uh, hell and, well, not being in hell. It was kind of like, you're not quite in hell, but you're not really in a good place, and you need to get out of purgatory. Um, so, and that was kind of where saints went and paid their penance before they could be led into heaven, um, in a nutshell. That's what that is. And so what people did to get people set free out of purgatory, it, the, there was a teaching that you could get people free out of purgatory by paying indulgences. And indulgences could be, you know, a, an offering to the church. It could be a, a, the certain prayers that you prayed a certain number of times, like, you know, like they have rosary, the rosary, Harry, Hail Mary, full of grace, blah, 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 all that, um, the Lord's Prayer. But they had different prayers. Um, they had different prayers for that. And Martin Luther's climbing up the steps of the Vatican, I believe it is. And he's, uh, and he, he went through it. He went through, uh, actually, he wasn't just climbing the steps. There were shards of broken glass on the steps. What the heck? So it's already... It already is terrible that you've got people climbing up these steps. They had to say this certain prayer each for each step they went up as this kind of penance thing that they did in order to set people free from uh, uh, purgatory. Um, but, oh my gosh, the way it, it, Martin Luther saw the way that the church was making his its people suffer under their political thumb and under their, you know, they, they'd gotten power hungry, basically. They had gotten greedy and arrogant. And there were things that they were preaching that were not biblical at all. This indulgences thing is not biblical. But they were taking it from scripture in Romans. And he also went inside the Vatican and they had all the relics there. Basically, they had like a piece of the true cross. They had like, I think they had the bones of Peter still, and Peter's considered the first pope of the church. Um, and Peter's awesome. Peter has done so much, but he's also, I, I personally think Paul's the best. Actually, I think John's the best. I love John, and <laughs> I always say that just because it's like we share the same name, but um, I love Revelation. I used to be obsessed with Revelation. We'll have to, we'll have to go back into a um, uh, eschatology at some point here, but anyway, um, I'm, I'll try not to talk too much longer. I, I just get on a roll and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much more I want to say, but, um, and I didn't end up talking about the printing press. Um, 
I kind of did. But also, I want to say about the Gutenberg Bible that he said that he uh, printed. Um, it, it is also the most printed book in the world today, the Bible. It's the first book, and it's the, the best-selling book to date. There's nothing else that outsells it. The Quran doesn't. Uh, nothing that Buddha said is greater than the Bible. Um, there's no best-selling book in America. There's not even Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Not any rich, not any wealth book. Not any uh, non-fiction book. Not any fiction book. Not even Lord of the Rings. Not even the Chronicles of Narnia. No, um, the Game of Thrones. I don't know. Whatever book you want to pull out of the and pull out of a hat, nothing compares in sales. Nothing compares in distribution and in print than the Bible. Um, and actually, most of the time, the Bible is not being sold; it's just being given out. Um, but that's that's the kingdom of God. It's it's given; it shall be given unto you. The last shall be first, and the first last. Okay, all of that was to stall for me to get to the scripture that I want to get to. Um, I can't remember the scripture, but it's in Romans where he's, it's either Romans or Ephesians, but many times in the Vulgate, um, you would see the word grace and it would be actually translated indulgence, which is where they would get this concept of paying indulgences. And they had that concept of indulgences as something that was us to God. And it was something that we did for God. But that wasn't the case. It was grace. So the scripture that I'm thinking of is, for it's by grace through faith that we're saved, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And grace was what um, Martin Luther discovered uh, was the, the key, the central thing. It's salvation wasn't through indulgences. Salvation wasn't through our good works. Faith is mo- faith, uh, good works are most certainly a part of the Christian walk and life. And it's a part of the fruit, but it is not how you get saved in the first place. You get saved by faith in his grace towards you. And Martin Luther pointed this out among many other things that he saw that was going on in the church that he was like, uh, this is wrong. Um, you're making people pay for something and it does not even work because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> and um, and he his ability to find this in Scripture was made possible through the printing press, through the mass production of the Bible going on in that day. And so, of course, he had made all these statements. He had written all these works, and they were getting mass distributed, and the Catholic Church didn't like it. And in the famous uh, Council of Worms um, in, in Germany, he's told to recant and basically says, I cannot go against my conscience on this. I can't. I, I, I want to see the church better. And I want to be able to speak into it and uh, see and see what I've seen in the word and know that it's true and come to you with my grievance and have us reason together about it. But you won't. But so I'm not recanting. I will not recant. And he doesn't recant. Um, 
and a revolution ensues. Um, we, he is probably the one who started the great, the reformation of the church here. Um, you, you have other people that come onto the scene like John Calvin. Um, you have other people who come on to the scene. Oh, well, I mean, Henry VIII had his own thing going, and, but that wasn't. <laughs> anyway, um, Martin Luther, he started a revolution in the study of the word for yourself. He printed and he copied a translation of the, of, uh, and he, he took straight from the Greek and Hebrew himself too, but he brought it straight from there to German so that people in the German, in his language, it wouldn't be just uh, monks anymore and people in the church able to read this work. Any common person could now read the Bible for themselves, thanks to Martin Luther and thanks to the printing press, thanks to these people who um, had the idea of getting knowledge and learning put out for everyone to have access to. So... That is where I'll conclude that. So, I uh, this that's one of my favorite uh, parts of history, and um, the printing press is awesome. The uh, that uh, Martin Luther, I loved this movie that that I watched of him uh, of uh, Martin Luther. It was with Joseph Fiennes as Martin Luther, and uh, very good representation. Um, and it's not too dramatic, but it's. Um, but it's not boring either. It's a really good movie. I, I, uh, I recommend it. I really do. I think it's good. Um, I think that's it for me. And like I said, I think I'm going to go over uh, the Lord of the Rings next week. So not quite, not exactly in the same period. We'd be, we'll be jumping ahead like 400 years <laughs> more modern. But um, anyway, it, it is in keeping with uh, talking about writings, uh, Christian writings, and um, and you may not you may have not realized that Lord of the Rings is more of a Christian writing, but it actually is. Um, J.R.R. Tol- Tolkien didn't mean for it really to be a religious book, but you know he was he's such a devout Catholic that you know you can't help but write about who you are and have who you are come out on the printed page if you're a writer. Um, I, I, I know that to be true. I, you know, I journal a lot. I don't say that I write a lot, but, um, you know, you can't help but just write about what's in you. So we'll talk about him. We'll, we'll talk about Tolkien next week, the Lord of the Rings series and all of his other works and what Amazon's trying to do with their works next week and what my opinion on all of that is. So thank you for tuning in this week. This is John Feldhaus with Verity Talk. You have been listening to Epic Gnosis. I hope you got some epic knowledge today from this. And um, I'll see you all next time. And if I don't see you, if I don't see you again till tomorrow, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Someone still hasn't sent me a message about what that's from. And I'm not saying until I get a comment from Facebook. And Jordan, you can't comment on her own post, okay? It's got to be someone else. Cause I am, I'm, I'm going to give 10 bucks. It'll, <laughs> I'll Venmo it. Okay. All right. Love you all. Thank you so much. Have a good day.